We're in Matthew chapter 7. If you want to use the Pew Bible in front of you, that's page 812. If you don't have a Bible at home, take that Bible home with you, please. Page 812, Matthew chapter 7. The text we'll be studying today is verses 13 and 14, but we're going to read all the way to verse 27 because it's one section of Scripture. Would you stand with me as we read God's Word? Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes, or figs figs from thistles? So... Every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord. Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell. And the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. This is God's word. You may be seated. Father, this morning we come to your word knowing that this is not a light thing. That this is not a a, a text that we look forward to hearing. God, you know it's not a text that I look forward to preaching or that I enjoyed writing about. But I thank you that you have given us in your word challenging texts. so that we would be caused to examine ourselves against your word. Father, I pray right now for anyone here whose heart is hard to your word, that you would soften it by your spirit, that they would receive your word with gladness, and that it will not return to you void. I pray for those of us who are struggling in our faith, that we wouldn't be discouraged or beat down by a hard text. But that we would see the gravity, the weight. And we would know that there are times 
to, to feel weighted down by what you call us to. Father, as we receive your word this morning, as we begin to, to more closely understand what true discipleship is, would you give us joy in Jesus Christ and understanding by your Spirit and comfort in you only. In Christ's name, amen. Well, over the next few weeks, we're going to be studying these texts that we just read. And what we're going to see here is that Jesus is wrapping up the Sermon on the Mount. And in each of these lessons, here's what we're going to see. This week, he introduces this idea that there are two ways, the broad and the narrow. Next week, we'll see that there are two types of teachers. True teachers and false teachers. The week after that, we will see that there are two types of confessions. And on the next week, we'll see that there are two foundations to the faith. And here's the thing. These are not separate ideas. They're all related to one another. All of these passages fit together as Jesus' concluding call for a response from his listeners. Those who have been hearing his Sermon on the Mount. This week, when we address the two gates, the two roads, we need to see that the two ways, the easy and the hard, are an introduction to this one major idea that we're going to be covering these next few weeks. And essentially, this is what it is. There is an authentic, Christ-centered Christianity, and there's a counterfeit version. And the counterfeit version of Christianity is much easier to accept. And it's much easier to participate in. It is warm and it is comfortable and it doesn't cost you anything. But ultimately, it is Christless. Authentic Christianity, on the other hand, true discipleship, this is the hard path. It's filled with trial and trouble and the loss of what is dear to us in the world. But in the end, the reward is Jesus Christ himself. Our focus this morning is just going to see this idea introduced. All right, So this is an introduction to four hard sermons. And we're just going to be looking at verses 13 and 14 today. Here's what we need to see from these two verses. Okay, These two roads that we see in verses 13 and 14 are not describing pagan worldliness on the one hand and Christianity on the other. The wide road that Jesus is describing for us in verses 13 and 14, it's not the Vegas Strip or Bourbon Street and and, and the narrow road is Church Street. This is not the distinction that Christ is making for us. He's not talking about Christianity versus paganism. He's not talking about Christianity versus Buddhism or Christianity versus Hinduism or Islam or any of the other world religions. In the context of our passage, reading this in the context of Matthew 5 through 7, he's only talking about authentic Christianity 
and almost Christianity. Think about who he's talking to, all right? For what he's talking to a very Jewish people that have begun to grasp that Jesus could be the Messiah. These are the people that are following him. These are not pagans. They're not bootleggers and horse thieves. And he's just trying to persuade them to be good. These are religious, God-fearing people. Their religious heroes are the law-keeping Pharisees. And from all appearances, the Pharisees that we've been learning about, these uber-Jews, were walking on what appeared to be a narrow, hard high road above everyone else. They were doing a better job at obeying God's word than anybody else. They fasted two times a week. They tithed of everything they had. They prayed elegant, sincere-sounding prayers. They were good to their families. They were good to their communities. They were the most law-abiding, patriotic, phylactery-wearing, flag-waving Jews... And they studied the scriptures, and they studied the commentaries, and they studied commentaries about the commentaries every day, multiple times a day. Church, I want to emphasize this. These were the good guys. Okay? I think we often demonize them because we've heard the gospels over and over again. But these are the people we would have looked up to. These are the guys we would have listened to on the radio and said, Amen, brother, good preaching. But over and over again in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has said, you have got to have a different sort of righteousness than the righteousness of the Pharisees. It has to be a deeper righteousness, a whole life righteousness. You've got to have a righteousness that isn't just external for appearances only, but instead, and this is absolutely key, You must have a righteousness that originates in the heart and then flows out into all of life. And the only way, the only way we can have that type of righteousness is that our lives from the inside out must be transformed by the Holy Spirit to devotion to Jesus Christ. It's the only way. The problem with the Pharisees was that their righteousness, as good as it was, it was only skin deep. They did good things, genuinely good things. If you lost your wallet, they would return it to you with all the cash in it and some extra cash for your troubles. These are they're nice guys. Their, their behavior almost always appeared to be good, but their righteousness did not flow from their hearts. We saw this in chapter 6, didn't we? When they gave of their tithes and their offerings, what was their motive? They gave so that they could feel better about themselves. When they prayed, they did it to draw attention to themselves, to their superior holiness. When they fasted, they did it in order to appear religious. They were very, very churchy people. But Jesus, the searcher of hearts, he could see into their hearts. And their hearts revealed that their true treasure was not God, 
Their true treasure was their own self-importance. So while it appeared to the world around them that these men are walking a narrow, trying path, Jesus is saying, guys, they are actually walking with the crowd. Maybe they're out in front of the crowd. Maybe they're in their own HOV lane. But however you cut it, they're on the broad way that leads to destruction. They're doing what comes naturally to them. See, religiosity, doing religious things, it's natural. It's not spiritual. It doesn't save you. It cannot save you. It is man-made. It's self-serving. And what Jesus is telling us by placing this command... Enter by the narrow gate. By placing this command here in verse 13, at this climatic point in the Sermon on the Mount, he's saying that there is a way. Just like the Pharisees who who appear to be good Jews, there is a way to appear to be good Christians, but to actually be on the wide road that leads to destruction. There's a warning, isn't it? So beware. Because there are all sorts of people who think that they are following Christ, but are really just mindlessly walking on this broad road following some imaginary Jesus. All sorts of people are on this road. There are easy believism Christians there. Some preacher told these poor folks that if they didn't want to go to hell, all they had to do was walk down the aisle at the altar call, pray a prayer to accept Christ, and they would be good to go. Eternal security is easy as ABC. Never mind growing in Christ. Never mind a life of repentance and dying to themselves and truly following Christ day in and day out. Never mind having a heart that is being transformed by the Spirit. These deceived, almost Christians, have been inoculated against the true narrow gate gospel because they were persuaded by a pastor who wanted to get his baptism numbers up. And now unless they are shown what true discipleship looks like, they are going to continue on the road to hell but there aren't just cheap grace Christians on that road there are works righteousness Christians there too these are those who believe that on account of their good deeds outweighing the bad God will accept them they believe it isn't grace that saves them but their goodness and if you think you know better than that if, if you like me Believe in salvation by grace alone, watch out. Because there are even theologically correct Christians on this road. People who know all about God, all the names for God. They can draw a perfect timeline of biblical history. They might know Greek and Hebrew, they may go to seminary and can quote you the great theologians and their libraries are are filled with all of the books that all of us really should be reading. 
They listen to the right podcasts and they listen to the right preachers, but they have never entered by the narrow gate. And there are some conservative Christians on the broad road, six-day creationists who take the Bible seriously and say no to drugs and abortion and gay marriage, and they know that people are born male and female because God made them that way, and, and they're good parents, and they spank, and they homeschool, and they want prayer in the public schools, and the Ten Commandments in the courthouses, and when the national anthem comes on, they stand up. And there are some liberal-leaning Christians on that road. Men and women who believe in seeing God's good justice served here in our society right now. They want to see the poor lifted up. They want to see the oppressed freed from the tyranny of the majority. And because those things haven't happened yet, they kneel when the national anthem is played. But, but some of these people, like all the rest, have never entered the narrow gate. There are Methodists there. There are Presbyterians there and Anglicans and Lutherans and Pentecostals and Assemblies of God and Foursquares and Catholics and non-denominationalists and Bible churchers and Quakers and Shakers and Friends, Campbellites and Church of God and Church of Christ, and I'm too good for churchists. There's even Baptists there, some. (laughs) There are all sorts of unsaved Christians on the broad road. All sorts. And they're all very good people. And they're all very moral people. And many of them are doing very good, very Christian y things. Right? They're confessing that Christ is Lord. They're getting baptized. They're going to summer camp. They're going to mission trips and Bible studies. They can defend the faith. They're tithing and praying and singing in the choir. And what all of these people have in common is that all of them are on the wide road. None of them has truly been born again into Christ. None of them has entered into the narrow gate. And all that's true, but but here's the problem. And you're like, Dustin, that's the problem. No, here's the problem. Here's the real problem. Despite this road being so big, and so wide and so easy to get onto, none of us believes we're on the wide road. Nobody. If we knew we were there, we'd be looking for the first exit, wouldn't we? If we knew we were there, we'd be scouring the brush along the side of the road looking for that narrow gate wherever it is. None of us believes we're the ones on the road. It's always someone else. But if we take Jesus seriously, then we absolutely must realize that a good many of us are there. In fact, if Jesus is right, and Jesus is always right, this is terrifying. Because so look, at, look at the way that, that he says many and few. If you read this literally, then most people who claim to be Christians 
are on the wide road. Most. Many versus few. Most. Look at what he says in verse 13. The gate is wide. The way is easy that leads to destruction. Those who enter by it are many. And in verse 14, the gate is narrow. The way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Many on the easy road. The crowd is on that road. And they're positive and uplifting and encouraging and family friendly. And they're just saying, keep walking. Keep walking. Take it easy. You've got this. Look at you. You're doing great. God is good. But few are on the hard road. Many people claiming Christ are just doing what comes naturally to them. There are only a few in comparison who are actually being led along by the Holy Spirit and following Christ into and through difficulty. See, many of us, this is why this was hard to write, because I had to really self-examine this week. Many of us are so confident that we're on the right road that we don't even think twice about what Jesus is saying here. He's calling us to examine ourselves. Many of us believe we're following Christ, though we think we're on the hard road. So here's our question today. Are we? Are you? Well, how do you tell the difference? How do you know which road you're on? Is it our works? Well, it can't be works that define the path, can it? The, the whole bit about tithing and praying and fasting in chapter 6, that should be enough to persuade us. It's not just about what we do. The Pharisees did good work. It, it's not works that get us or keep us on the narrow road. So what is it? What's the difference? If we just step back from the Sermon on the Mount, what's the difference between the highway people and the hard path people? Well, the only difference between those people on the wide road and those on the narrow road, it's what's in their hearts, isn't it? It's, it's not in what they've done. It's not in what they believe. It's not in what they have said. The only difference is in their hearts. Think, think for, with me for a moment about the difference between King Saul, back in 1 Samuel, and King David. King Saul... I think we can probably surmise, based on the rest of First and Second Samuel, was a wide road guy. He looked good to everybody watching him. He made sacrifices. He worshipped. He was even filled with a spirit and prophesied. King Saul, on the outside, seemed to be a good guy. He looked good. He sounded good. He came from a good family. He was a powerful king. And when it came down to it, while he was king, really, what were his faults? What did Saul do that so displeased God and caused God to seek a different king for his people? Well, two things. Let me show you what they were. One, he made a sacrifice without waiting for the prophet to show up. Okay. And secondly, rather than killing all of the livestock of a tribe that he conquered, he saved the best of those flocks so he could make sacrifices to God. 
Those were his sins, his, his flaws. But, but what about King David? We know David's story. David sees a married woman bathing. He has his men go get her. He gets her pregnant and then has her husband, and not just her husband, but some of his best warriors killed in battle to cover up for his own sins. And what does the Bible tell us about these two men? Well, one of them was after God's own heart. Who was it? From a human perspective, who would we pick? Of those two guys. If we didn't have the narrator telling us what was going on in 1 Samuel, most of us would probably vote for Saul as the devoted, wholehearted king. Let's just be honest. And even when he erred, he erred on the side of making sacrifices to God. He's a good guy. And just the same, most of us would have probably said the rich young ruler was devoted to God at least before Jesus revealed his idolatry. Most of us would probably say that Judas, the man who was careful with the disciples' finances, was devoted to God. Most of us would vote the Pharisees most likely to succeed in heaven. We have got to realize we are usually horribly wrong when it comes to making heart judgments, especially of other people and ourselves. And that's is exactly the problem with us as a people. Not just Del Cero, I mean humans. Man looks at the outside. God looks at the heart. The heart is not our area of expertise. We are terrible at making these kinds of judgments. And in our pride, we're even worse at judging our own hearts. And Jesus is saying that in order to know which road you're on, You have to do just that. Examine your heart. So given our track record, we should at least be a little bit scared, shouldn't we? That we might be on the wide road and be none the wiser for it. And yet despite this weakness of ours, Jesus is asking us to do it anyway. He's challenging all of us to examine ourselves. Like Paul says to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, Jesus is saying, examine yourselves to see whether or not you're in the faith. Test yourselves. And in order to do this, there's something we've got to do. We have to doubt ourselves. Really? I mean it. Doubt yourself. Question everything you thought you knew about your own eternal security. We have to do something that our, that our once saved, always saved sensibilities just never let us do. We have to doubt ourselves and examine ourselves and ask, have I truly entered the narrow gate? Am I truly following Christ? Or have I been pretending to be a Christian this whole time? In other words, you have to ask, how do I know I've been born again? If your response to how do I know I've been born again is, I've always been a Christian, friends, that is not possible. You haven't always been a Christian. If you really think that, then I can assure you, you have been deceived by some smooth talker on the wide road. 
the birth canal may be narrow, but it is not the narrow gate that Jesus is talking about. There must be some point where we repent from living life for us and begin to follow Christ. That's why Jesus commands us to enter the narrow gate. It's a command. It's it's something that must take place. It has to be a deliberate, intentional, decisive abandonment of your old life, even if it was a good moral life. There must be a decisive point where you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, die to yourself and are raised to new life in Christ. That is what it means to enter the narrow gate, to repent, to die to the old self and be born into Christ. Friend, if you have never done this, don't be so proud as to reject Christ today. Receive him today. Today is the day of salvation. Enter the hard life of following Christ today. I will be right here after the service. And if, you, if you're just beginning now to kind of catch a glimpse of that hidden narrow gate, let's talk about this the rest of the day. If your answer to how do I know that I'm saved is because I do this or that Christian thing, friends, that is not sufficient grounds either. You can go to church and never die to yourself. You can go to youth group and never die to yourself. You can serve in the church. You can be a preacher. You can be a deacon. You can be a WMU lady. You can walk the aisle. You can get baptized. You can do lots of religious things and never die to the old self. The the old self doesn't die easily. He doesn't just keel over when we pray the sinner's prayer. That's the, the exact point of what Jesus is getting at here. The Pharisees were cream of the crop, Jewish born and raised, and they did all sorts of religious things. Way more religious and sacrificial stuff than you and I claim to do. But they were on the wide way to hell because they did those things as unto themselves. Not for God's glory, but for their own If you're trusting in your good works or your good name rather than in Christ alone, you've never entered the narrow gate. Repent. Today is the day of salvation. If your answer to how do I know that I'm saved is, I know that I'm a Christian because I believe some particular doctrine. Friend, your belief is not sufficient grounds for salvation. We'll talk about this in a couple weeks when we get to verse 21. But for now, just recognize this. The Pharisees were teachers of the law. They knew the Bible inside and out. It wasn't their beliefs that Jesus was questioning. It was their hearts. It was their hearts that were keeping them on the wide road. So if you're trusting in your grasp of Christian doctrine to get you through the narrow gate. Repent. Repent and enter the gate 
on account of Christ's knowledge of you and not your knowledge of him. Today is the day of salvation for you. Listen, the true disciples on the hard road were not or are not looking at themselves or in themselves for proof that they're on the right road. It's not found in us. When someone on the hard road wants to be assured that they're on the right road, all they need to do is look in front of them. Because ahead of them on the hard road is Jesus himself. If you look up and you see a better version of you, you are on the wide and easy road. If you look up and you see wealth and prosperity in front of you, you are on the easy wide road. If you look up and you see fame and recognition, you're on the easy road. If you look up and you see the approval of others, you are on the easy road. If you look up and see a church building in front of you, you are on the easy road. If you look up and you see happiness, you are on the wide and easy road. But if you look up and you see Jesus, and I don't mean stained glass Jesus. I mean, if your focus is on the living Savior, the founder and perfecter of your faith, if you are striving for him, you can be assured you are on the hard road. And when you think back to when you entered the narrow gate, all you will remember is that it was by grace and by this Holy Spirit that you entered the narrow gate. And when you think back to the times when you thought your sin was too great, that you couldn't possibly be on the right road, that you, you thought you would be disqualified because of your sin, you look back and you remember that Jesus said His grace is sufficient for you, that the, the power of the cross was sufficient for you. And in the joy of his mercy, you repented again and you believed again and you continued to walk. And when you look back at the times in your doubt and discouragement that you thought you would give up following Christ, you remember that it was by the Spirit's power that you stayed on the hard road. His work got you there. His work keeps you there. His work will get you where you're going. If that's true for you, I want to encourage you this morning. You're on the hard road. You're on the right road. But you have to remember, it's it's called the hard road for a reason. Following Christ is not easy. If anyone ever says, it is easy, he is lying to you. It is not easy. A lifestyle of repentance is not easy. True saving faith is not easy. Taking up your cross and following Christ through the cross-shaped gate, that's not easy. Your salvation is free, but it's not cheap. It's not easy. When Jesus says hard road, do you know what he's talking about? He's not talking about the carpet from the back of the church to to the front aisle. The hard road isn't the decision between getting up and going to church or going to brunch. He's assuming that his followers prioritize worshiping him over mimosas and quiche. 
There is an assumption in Scripture that the worship of our Lord and Savior comes before everything else. Going to church is not the hard road. That's not what he's talking about. The hard road is the road that leads to and through persecution. What did Jesus say back in chapter 5 at the very beginning of this sermon? When he gave us the Beatitudes, the blessed are, blessed are. Do you remember that? Back in 5, verse 10, he said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's the hard road. The hard road is hard because... It's difficult. That's why we call it the hard road. Following Christ means following him into persecution. This is so hard for us, isn't it? In America, to to really kind of get our minds around. I don't think we totally understand this. We can read books about it. We can hear testimonies about it. But there isn't, not often, this type of difficulty Our road isn't often that hard, which is really why it's so hard to distinguish which road we're on. For the next few weeks, our challenged team is going somewhere where there is a cost. A cost not so much to them as to the people that they'll be sharing the gospel with. If any of our team is caught evangelizing nationals, they'll just get kicked out of the country, right? They lose their visa, maybe they can't go back, maybe they lose some cash, but they come back to us. But if the people that they share the gospel with confess Christ and follow Christ and worship Christ and gather with other confessing Christians, what happens? They lose their job, they lose their homes, they lose their families sometimes, they go to prison. There's a cost. The road is hard. Our sister that we prayed for this morning is going to a place where there will be a cost to following Christ. Where the people there know this hard road really is a hard road. There's, there's, no, there's far fewer inauthentic Christians in North Africa. She's going to a place where because of Satan's blinding work and spreading the deception of Islam... Following Christ will mean losing your family, losing your home, and in many cases, losing your life. And she's giving up a good job and safety and financial security. She's giving up comfort and peace and prosperity to go there. But she knows it's worth it because she'll be helping call people to the narrow gate. But for many of us, the, the, the concept of this road actually being a hard road is, is literally foreign. It is foreign places where following Christ is hard. Not here. Here we get complacent. We get comfortable. So much so that we think something has gone horribly wrong when we gather as a church and there's this feeling of discomfort. too hot or it's too cold or the seat's wobbly or or some guest is sitting in my seat 
But friends, walking the road behind Christ is not comfortable. The Bible never said it was. It was never supposed to be comfortable. There's no comfort to be found in daily dying to yourself to see his name lifted up. There's no comfort in daily dying to our desires to be entertained or to feel pleasure in seeking to be edified in him instead. There's no comfort there. There's no fleshly comfort in seeking him in his word, finding Jesus in his word, and then cherishing him above ourselves. There's no comfort in considering others above ourselves and loving him in his sinful people and serving him with our entire lives. This is hard. True discipleship brings no comfort to the flesh. And so it's not natural for us to desire that. It's not natural for us to want it. And yet, this is the hard road. And it is the road of discipleship in Jesus Christ. Looking forward to the next few weeks. (laughs) This is not easy. It's not easy to preach. It's not easy to read. It's not easy to hear. But I think that it is beholden upon us as a church to take it seriously, isn't it? Let's pray. Father, thank you for getting us through this text this morning, for getting me through it. I thank you that you that you have given us the patience to hear from you. I pray for those that are that are troubled or are stirred up this morning by this passage, by your word.